Good morning, ladies. Thank you so much. Oops. Thank you for your beautiful music. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you hold everything together. We praise you for that. Father, we just would ask now that you would help us to fix your eyes on you as we go to your word. Help us to understand your word. Help us to take the words that we're about to study and then apply them to our lives and live them out to the glory of God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, good morning. This morning, I would like to start with a few statistics. Beginning back in 2003, a survey was taken that claimed on any given Sunday, in your average church across the United States, 61% of the congregation was made up of women, compared to the 39% that was men. The gap gap becomes even greater in the midweek service, where that jumps up to 70 to 80% of the participants participants being women. LifeWay did a study a while back and found that over 70% of the boys who are being raised in church will abandon it during their teens and 20s, many to never return. One survey said that our Christian universities are becoming convents with women outnumbering men two to one. One survey said that less than 10% of American churches were able to establish or sustain a viable men's ministry compared to 110% of the churches able to sustain women's ministries. The Barna Group, based on their research back in the year 2000, they put it this way. They said women are the backbone of the Christian church in America. Now, is that a compliment? According to the trending bloggers and authors, the reason we are not reaching men is because we have made church too feminine. We have emasculated the church. The bloggers tell us that the unchurched man who comes to visit is immediately faced with nurseries and children's programs and romantic worship songs. And to them, it is the equivalent of being invited to a chick flick. They charge that we have removed the testosterone from the church. Now, as I was reading all of this, I... I, found myself being very thankful for the men that stand before us and lead in this church. But what about that charge as a whole when we're speaking of the American church? Have we emasculated the church? Have we pushed out masculinity? Have we pushed out the manhood? Or perhaps a better question would be, do we even know what that means? Do we have a basic understanding of what biblical manhood is? Last week, we talked about how we were created in the image of God, and we talked about how to oppose and attack the opposite gender is an attack against the very image of God. Now think about that. 
because we do not want to attack manhood, and we certainly do not want to push it out of the church. So, for that reason, we want to encourage and support manhood. And so, for that reason, we have got to understand it. So, if you are married, or if you have sons, or if you have contact, any kind of contact whatsoever with men, I think today's lesson should be helpful. Okay. We're going to spend our time this morning, we're going to be looking at the original design for men and man. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to factor in how sin enters the equation and the consequences of sin and how that impacts manhood. Okay, for this morning, we want to take a look at those God-given attributes and qualities that are definitive of manhood, okay, the original design. Now, some of what we go over this morning are going to be what I call the non-negotiables. All right, these are the things that were pointed out in your lesson. These are the things that if you listen to any solid preacher or read a Bible study for men, they're, they're all going to point these out. They're all going to agree on those. All right, those are our non-negotiables. And then we're going to also talk about some things that we can't be as dogmatic about, but that I think we'll find supplemental and, and helpful in understanding um, the men in our lives. Okay. We have an advantage when we are talking about manhood in that we have a, an, a model of it in the person of Jesus Christ. He models it for us on every page of the Gospels. You want to teach your children about manhood? Take them to the Gospels. Now, for today, we're going to focus in on the creation account. That's where we're going to park today. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 2, uh, we shall begin there. Okay, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1. That's where we saw the big picture of creation. This week we're going to chapter 2. Chapter 2 goes back, zooms in to that creation account, and fills us in with some details. And uh, the authors in the book, they put it this way, and we're going to make it your first point. And that is, number one on your papers, everything that God did in his creation of male and female was significant. Okay, the creation account is brief. And yet, when Jesus addresses manhood, he will point back to the creation account. When Paul is addressing manhood, he will point back to the creation account. So, so what is here is significant, and we want to understand that as we're reading this. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 7, chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, we're going to stop there. What details do we learn about the man in this passage, and uh, what's significant about it? Well, number two on your paper. Man was formed of dust from the ground outside of the garden. Now, what's the big deal of that? Well, this is going to be one of those things that I can't be dogmatic about. But some will point out, they like to point out, that man was created from the earth. He's created from the dirt outside the garden, and then he is placed and put inside the garden on the homestead. So he's taken from out in the wild and brought into the garden. And perhaps 
that helps us to explain some of the differences between um, male and female. How most men are inclined to love the outdoors and to love nature, okay? They are uh, um, most likely more comfortable with that. Now, I am not saying that women don't like nature and that we don't like outdoors. Okay, we like flowers and, <laughs> and we like the beach, okay? That we, we like those things. But I just know in, in, my, in my world, it has been the men that thrive with getting their hands dirty and working outside and chopping wood. It's the men that get up at three o'clock in the morning to sit in a tree or hide in a bush or, or, um, or, or fish in complete silence, okay? Um, it's the men that seem to enjoy the things of nature and the things less tamed, untamed. All right, now am I saying that if your husband doesn't like to camp, that he's not really a real man. Okay. No, no, I, I hope not because uh, <clears throat> I didn't raise campers. So uh, I want to be very careful not to reduce any of this to macho stereotypes. That's not what I'm going for here. And I was very hesitant to even bring that first point up because of that. Here's why I do mention it. Because you may have a husband that spends 60 hours a week in an office or staring at a computer or having to talk to people all day. And when he comes home from work, he may, it may be really nice for him to come home and see a little bit of the outdoors. It may benefit him to spend his evenings or unevening or his weekends doing something a little less domesticated. Okay. All right, let's move on. We're going to pick up at verse 15, and I'm going to read all the way down to 25. This will be our longest stretch this morning. Verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay, this is a lot to unpack in here. Verse 15, I want you to notice that we are told a second time that the man is moved from his place of origin and into the garden. And then we're told the reason. We are told that he is placed in the, being placed in the garden to work it and keep it. 
Okay, so the first thing that we want to see is God gives him a job. He puts him to work. Okay, so next point, number three. God gave man a unique responsibility to work. It is a key part of who they are. Immediately after he is created, he is put to work. He is given a job. Now, does this mean that women will not have to work? Okay, no. We should be so lucky. No, that's not what that means. What we are seeing is that work is foundational to manhood in a way that it is not foundational to women. Men are connected to work in a way that women are not. You may have understood this firsthand. Have you ever had a husband unemployed? Statistics will tell you that it is far harder for a man to be unemployed than for the woman. Women will worry about the finances. Men will struggle with their self-worth and their identity with a job loss. Listen to how Vody Bauckham explains this. He says, and I quote, When I'm at a men's conference and men want to know me, they want to know what I do. If a man knows what you do, he knows you. That's a man's perspective. At a woman's conference, if a woman wants to know you, she wants to know who you're connected to. Okay. Um, Men, they're connected to work. Okay. Now, a little side note here. As your children get older, one of the things you're going to discuss and debate is dating and when to have boyfriends and girlfriends and when to start all of that. There's an interesting guideline that Scripture gives us here in this creation account, and that is the job came before the relationship with the woman. Did you see that? Um, one, one, pastor said, one pastor said when he preaches this to his congregation, they cheer. Like, yeah. Okay, I thought that was cool. Okay, so when your son starts to act a little boy crazy, you can say to him, son, your body is telling you it's time to get a job and start saving. Okay. Okay. All right, now the author goes on to explain that that word for work is a common word for labor, but it also contains the idea of serving somebody other than yourself. Okay, you're working, but you're working on behalf of. Okay, you're not working just for the accolades. You're working for the sake of others. You're providing. Okay, so that brings us to our next point, number four. God commissioned men to be providers. Author Shanti Feldhahn discovered in her research of men that providing was like an obsession. It was like a drive for men. It was always on their minds. Even if their wives worked, they still felt and carried the responsibility of providing for their families. They went on to explain that while it was a burden, it was also a desired goal. They wanted to do it. They wanted their families to uh, depend on them. This was interesting. She found that men view providing as the primary means that they express their love. So she found that when they say, in their mind, their providing for you is their way of saying, I love you. Okay, that's how they expressed their love. Now that's very interesting. Because sometimes we women, we think that if our husband isn't being romantic, or if he's not being attentive, then he isn't being loving. 
Okay. Well, is he getting up every day out of bed and going to work? Because he may be more loving than you're giving him credit for. Okay. So God has put in the hearts of men that drive to work and provide, and this is going to be our first non-negotiable. So next on your paper, this is a non-negotiable. Men are to work and provide. That is at the core of biblical manhood. Also, in verse 15, we read that God put... Sorry, hang on. I'm tangled. That was a little too jingly. Okay, also, verse 15, we read that God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. And that word keep means to be in charge of. It means to guard, protect, and look, down, and look after. Okay, so next on our paper, number five, God created men to be protectors. God gave men the capacity and the inclination to protect, to guard, to self-sacrifice on behalf of the family. Okay, now this doesn't mean that women can't contribute. Okay, it just means that this is going to be primarily their thing. And in fact, God has physically equipped them for this. They typically are bigger. They typically are stronger. They typically have, I mean, they're made of muscle. They have muscle mass, so uh, typically. Okay, one writer said this. He said, look at the sports and look at how many of them involve protecting something. You're protecting home plate. You're protecting the goal. You're protecting the quarterback. It's just an innate uh, drive in a man. Okay, this is actually our next non-negotiable. Non-negotiable on your paper. Men are to protect. You may remember a famous scene from a Seinfeld episode. George Costanza is at a birthday party with little children, and he smells smoke, he thinks there's a fire, he starts screaming, he starts panicking, and then immediately you see him knocking over the little grandmas and pushing little children out of the way as he rushes to get to the head of the line and and go for safety. And people are just, they're just repulsed at at his behavior. And why is that? It's comedic, why? Because we know men are to protect and they're to guard. That's just a part of being a man. This made me think of uh, my son, Garrett. When he was in the fifth grade, we would go for walks in my neighborhood. And I I began to notice that he always made me, he would insist that I stand to the left of him. Well, that meant I was in the gravel or in the grass and he was on 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 the road. So I just was curious one day, why, why do you always make me stand on this side? And he said, because I don't want to grow up without a mother. So, so I thought, okay, you know, he's, in his mind, he's protecting me, and he's putting me in what he saw as a safer spot. And you know what? He wanted to be the protector, <clears throat> and I let him. It was safe. It was a good, good chance for him to spread his wings a little bit on that. <clears throat> that was a... Um, That was something that I wanted to encourage in him. You know, uh, opening the door, picking up the heavy boxes, going in first to check and make sure everything's all right. Those are protective things. Those are guarding things. Those are self-sacrificing things. And and they're a part of being a man. 
And so we want to be encouraging those um, in our children, our sons. Okay, next thing we notice from this passage. Number six, man was created first. He was the firstborn. Now, you've likely studied the concept of firstborn before. Um, As you know, in Bible times, the firstborn, he had certain privileges, such as he received a greater inheritance. But that was primarily because he had more responsibility. Okay, he was carrying the weight of the family and was responsible for their well-being just under the father. He was the family representative. He was the one that stood and gave account for the rest of the family. And and you may know this from experience. I know in my family, uh, if my kids were off playing and the younger ones did something uh, silly or something they shouldn't have done, and you bring them all in, you instinctively go to the oldest and say, where were you? Well, you know, where were you when all of this was going on? Um, I'm not saying that was the right thing to do, but it was just, you just instinctively know that firstborn has a certain responsibility to care and protect for those under. Now, also the area of the firstborn, if you did your homework, you saw that um, it is especially significant because of what it will mean later in the New Testament. It will point to Jesus being the firstborn, and he is our representative, and as that representative died on our behalf, and he will perform the role perfectly. Now, but let's go back to Adam. What difference does it make between the genders that Adam was first? Okay, that brings us to point number seven. The firstborn status of Adam implied headship, authority, and responsibility. He was to be the head of the family. He's the man of the house. He's going to be the one overseeing the family unit. Now, we've seen that he's going to be taking responsibility for providing. We've seen that he's going to be taking responsibility for protecting. What else uh, will he exercise headship over? Well, that's number eight. God created the man to exercise spiritual oversight. The man is to be the spiritual leader in the marriage and in the home. Now, I want to point back to verse 15, where we saw that word work. If you did the homework, we read that that was a word that could also refer to um, uh, describing the duties of a priest. And then we see in verse 16, where God gives the commandment about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who does he give that to? He gives it to the man. And then the man is expected to have the responsibility and teach the woman. So from the very beginning, we see that man was to provide for the family's spiritual oversight. Now, that does not mean that women are off the hook. Okay? It does not mean that we don't pursue our own spiritual disciplines. It doesn't mean that you don't teach your, old chi- that your own children. Uh, this is just showing us that men are going to shoulder the responsibility for their families in a way that is uh, unique from women. Okay? Now, I need you to think about that for a minute. Think about the weight of that responsibility. Because we should be on our faces, on our faces, interceding for our husbands on this. Okay, that brings us to our next non-negotiable. Next on your paper, non-negotiable. Men are to lead. Men are to lead. Now, the feminists love to say that there was no headship in the garden, that everything was uh, mutual. But, um, so I think it's not surprising that God would give us more than one example of headship 
in this brief account in creation. Now, uh, and one of those places we want to see is in the naming. Okay, in verse 19, we're told that God brought the animals to Adam and he names them. Then in verse 23, we read that he names the woman. Now, if you did your homework, you learned that naming was, was what? It expressed they were showing authority over something. So, um, once again, we're seeing that the men are to be leaders. Now, we want to point out that doesn't mean that the women did not have any authority or leadership roles. Remember, she too was given the command to have dominion over the earth. Okay? But um, the fact that Adam is firstborn and that he alone names the animals does point that the man has a distinct authority that is not interchangeable with that of women. Okay, now you know what this means? It means that if we are to encourage men to be men, one of the primary ways that we will encourage their manhood will be to let them lead. Leadership is just all through this passage. Okay? Their manhood is connected to their God-given design to lead. All right. We're going to talk a minute about this headship and authority that they're supposed to uh, exercise in the home and then later in the church. Uh, We want to consider how the man was given the task of naming the animals before the woman arrived on the scene. Okay, why not wait till she was there? Name them together. Well, um, we've studied this before, and and one of the things that um, Adam clearly would have seen as he was naming the animals, he would have realized he was alone, so so that's one reason. But the book points out something else. He says that the job would have also provided some much-needed training for him. As the author said, Adam was getting a training session on governing and exercising authority in a godly manner. Now, John Piper uh, puts it this way. He has a good definition that he uses when describing male headship in a marriage, and I actually have it on your paper. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. So out of his, eh, out of his headship, provision and protection flow. Okay, so when we talk about men being leaders in a marriage in a home, we're not talking about a man just barking out orders and, and uh, trying to control everything and making all the decisions. That's not what we're talking about here. Our example is in the headship and leadership of Jesus. And his, his leadership was a sacrificial. His was serving, his servanthood. Um, Piper likes to use the example of the way Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He was serving, and yet there was no doubt in anyone's mind in that room who was the leader. Okay? That's what our men have been designed for. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next thing. And this is very similar to leadership, and I want to draw your attention to verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, it says that the man is to leave his father and his mother. Why not say that they both should leave? In Bible times, typically it was the woman that left her family to go live with the man's family on the family compound. So uh, what's going on here? 
All right, well, let's think back. Do you remember at the very beginning in the creation count, we saw that two times we were told that the man was taken from the wild and put into the garden. He was to leave that place of origin and then go off and start and work on his own garden. Okay, then you come to this verse, and we're told explicitly that a man is to leave his mother and his father. He's to leave his boyhood, okay, and go to a place where he will cleave his wife and start his own little family. Okay, he is to show initiative, all right? And so that's our next point, number 10. Taking initiative is at the core of what it means to be a man. This is a wonderful lesson to remind us that little boys are designed to grow up and leave the home and not depend on mom. Now, thankfully, you have 18 years to uh, prepare yourself for that, but... I want to ask you something. Are you training your sons to need you? Or are you training them to grow up and take care of themselves and to take care of a family of their own? Are you training them to be men that leave and get a job and start a family? Now, I know that this, I know it's hard these days because the economy certainly throws a wrench into all of this. But are you training them to be initiators? And that brings us to our next non-negotiable, and that is men are to initiate. Piper shares something that he, use in pre, that he uses in premarital counseling. When it comes to leadership, when it comes to initiating, he says a good indicator is the word let's. Who's using the word let's in your marriage? Let's go to dinner Friday night. Let's start saving for Christmas. Let's invite your family over for Thanksgiving. Who's using the word let's? I, um, after I heard this, I started listening to myself. And uh, it turns out I'm not as good at this as I thought I was. (laughs) Now, um, if you find that you are the one saying uh, let's a lot, or you have a husband that's passive, and that's something we're going to be talking about in the future, but let's let's say that um, you're the one, you find yourself using that word a lot. Piper encourages you to start asking questions. Instead of saying, let's go out Friday night, try saying, Honey, what, what do you want to do on Friday night? You know? Now, I know sometimes my husband doesn't want to be bothered with every detail, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, um, let's move on. Let's go back, and I want us to consider verse 19. All right, verse 19 uh, is where the, the animals are being brought to Adam, and he is going to be told to name them, and he does. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about what a big job that was. Now, Adam had a pre-fall brain, it's true, but regardless, uh, that would have been a challenge for Adam, okay? And there's nothing here to indicate that he was just randomly calling them stuff. The picture here is, is someone that is, that is analyzing, and he's, and he's using a lot of in- intellectual thought in, in naming them. Okay, now, this is another one of those things that I can't be real dogmatic about, but... 
Uh, most of the male authors that I read, they all made a point to mention that men like a challenge. They like a challenge. They want to be intellectually challenged. They want to be physically challenged. They are wired for risks. They want to venture out, and they want to overcome and succeed. They, they want to subdue the earth. Basically. Now, um, when I was first married, I can remember my husband was always dreaming up these plans. And we would, I remember, newly married, we were going out with a couple of friends, and he started talking about uh, wanting to raise strawberries. And start a strawberry farm. And then, and then from there he went to corn, and he just did all these things. And, and I remember I would look at him and go, you've never farmed a day in your life. What, what are you talking about? And, and then he went through his restaurant stage. And that was where, like, every time we went to a restaurant, he would want to open one just like the one we had eaten at. And, and I would, again, the same thing. You've never been in, you don't know anything about the restaurant business. You can't stand being in the kitchen. And it was pretty much this routine. He would come up with an idea, and I would shoot it down. You know, he's trying to move forward, and I, I'm doing everything I can to pull him back. Well, um, we, we worked, he worked, he worked very hard to build our first house. We move in, there's no, you know, it's not decorated, there's no furniture, but he immediately starts talking about building another. You know, he's talking about, oh, that's, we're going to move here and we're going to build this, and, and it made me mad. And I looked at him and said, why can't you just be content? And why can't you be content with your job? Why can't you be content with this house? Well, you know what? I didn't have a clue about the way my husband was wired. I wanted a risk-free life. I wanted caution. I wanted routine. Now, um, some of that may have been personality. But it is said that men come with an innate sense for risk and adventure and challenge, and without that, they are likely to become bored and passive. We have got to be careful that we do not suck the life out of our men. And here's another reason why. Consider that if the gospel is to be spread across the ends of the earth, especially nowadays, we need men like this. We need men that will take risks and like a challenge. Okay, it is said this was supposedly an ad in 1907 when Ernest Shackleton was preparing to explore the North Pole. <clears throat> the ad went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition in case of success. It said they received 5,000 applicants. So, our next point, number 11. Men are wired to like a challenge and take risks. Now, there are two more things we're going to hit, and both of these we've discussed before, so we're going to do the speed version of this, but I need you to turn back to chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 28. <clears throat> one twenty-eight. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Okay, stop there. Author and pastor Eric Mason put it this way. Listen to what he says. I quote, 
one of the first commands that God gave man and woman was to have sex. A lot of sex. So much sex that the earth would be filled with the product of sex. Okay, here's the next thing that we want to see. Men have been created to be sexual beings with a God-given sex drive. Joshua Harris put it this way. Quote, God gave us our drives so we would drive towards something. Just as he gave us an appetite for food so that we wouldn't forget to feed our bodies, he gave us a sexual appetite so that men and women would keep being joined together, creating offspring in marriage. Now, we've, we've talked about this topic before, and we've really never addressed that part of it. Procreation isn't the only reason for sex. Okay, but this is a good reminder that we have been created, that the men have been created with a biological, God-given sex drive. And as Josh Harris puts it, a sex drive is not the same as lust. Okay? Something else that we might want to understand. We see it in verse 23. When the woman is brought before Adam and he breaks out into poetry, now we, we want to keep in mind she hasn't said anything. She hasn't done anything. He, he is, you know, he is reacting to her presence. He's reacting to the sight of her. Men are visual, and they have been wired to appreciate a beautiful woman. One man explained that you can ask a room full of men what they consider to be the most beautiful thing on earth, and they will always answer the same, a beautiful woman. Now, in the case of Eve, <clears throat> when she is presented to him, she is naked, okay? Men have been designed to react to female nudity in a way that women do not necessarily reciprocate, okay? Um, I used to tell the teenage girls when I taught them that guys have been created to crave your bodies. Now, sin will make a mess of this. And we will talk about that in the weeks to come. That, that lesson is coming. But for now, we need to understand that the God-given drives were a part of the original design. Okay, one last thing. <clears throat> I want you to take a look at the things that we have ascribed to uh, biblical manhood, the, the non-negotiables. Okay, look at those. And then I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, is it any wonder men want to be respected? Shanti Feldhahn, again, tells us the story of how she does some research, and she asks uh, groups and groups of men, and she poses the question. She said, would you rather feel unloved and alone or disrespected and made to feel inadequate? The overwhelming majority always answered they would rather feel unloved and alone with the remaining wanting clarification because they said, is it not the same thing? Men, for a man, respect, they interpret respect as love. Their love language is respect. She also went on to say, I thought this was interesting. She said the primary reaction that a man will have to feeling or being disrespected will be anger. So if your husband is angry with you, good chance, not always, not always, but good chance he's feeling disrespected. Okay, now, you want to show love to your husband, you respect him. You take a look at the things on this list. You respect 
the way he provides for you. Praise him for it. Thank him for it. You respect the way he protects your house. Do you feel safe at night when you go to sleep? Okay, you respect that man for that. You praise him for it. You honor him for it. The decisions he makes, respect him, praise him for his decisions. Okay, brings us to our last and final point. Number 13, men have been wired to crave respect. Let's pray. Let's close this out in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have provided in your word a model of manhood. You have, you have provided for us the, your original design for manhood. And, and Lord, we just ask that you will help this get deep, get deep into our hearts. I pray that you will help us as women begin to encourage this in our men and seek for ways to support them and not to be uh, constantly challenging or belittling or demeaning in our treatment to not just our husbands, but just to the men of this church and the men that we, that we encounter as we go about our day. Help us to treat them as, as the man that they have been made in the image of God. Father, I pray that you'll bless the, the, the small group time. I pray that the conversation will be sweet and deep and that you will be magnified And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, the firstborn of creation, died for our sins. We praise your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.